Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today we're getting into part two of my conversation with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Now, Muhammad's new book is The Other Half of You. This is a two-parter, so make sure you go out and check out episode one. It'll give you a lot more context to the story and background some of the issues that Muhammad is really addressing and that we're going to explore further in part two. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, unceded land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Michael Muhammad Ahmed is the author of The Tribe and The Lebs. The Lebs was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Award. He's edited the After Australia collection that we featured on the show last year and is the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement. It's part two of my conversation about his new novel, The Other Half of You. Bani Adam knows that his family expect him to do the tribe proud, to marry the right kind of girl and grow their family. But Bani knows that this is not the only way to be a good son and a good man. The other half of you is Bani telling the story of this life and this love to his son Khalil, to help Khalil understand the complexity of his identity as a Muslim, an Australian, and a man, Bani is going to have to tell both halves of that story. Now, here in part two, we are going to explore the damage that media depictions of young Lebanese men has done over the years and the ways that Muhammad has worked in his writing to tell more nuanced stories. We also get more into the heart of the novel and discover a humorous side, a funny side of Muhammad. Join me as we get into part two of Michael Muhammad Ahmed's The Other Half of You. Can I touch on some of the... um, ideas of identity and coming into identity that we've we've had sort of in the background to this discussion um because again you and i i'm very conscious that you and i we have been making literary references we have been mining mining our education for our understanding and this is something that is very much part of bani's um journey and his struggle uh with identity as as a university educated man, as a as a man who is a part of a family with close family connections, as an Alawite Muslim, as a man who is a part of, but also recognizes the white Anglo hegemony of the society that he lives in. Um, what what tensions, or how did you how did you come, or have you found any way to resolve any of those tensions in yourself or through the writing of the other half of you? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it, it, firstly, what I would say is that I, you know, I, tr- I, I, I think it's the task of a writer to examine their entire society, and I, I, I never, I, I never like to play the good guy, bad guy, uh, victim, oppressor narrative. I think that's way too toxic right now. Mm. You know, that kind of hierarchy of oppression, and you know, just kind of being on Twitter and just, uh, you know, accusing everybody because you're a man or because you're white or because you're heterosexual or because you're economically well off, that therefore you're a criminal, you know, mm. and that you should be, pre- you're inherently predatory and therefore you should be cancelled. I'm really against that kind of, um, that kind of uh, trend at the moment. 
and, and, you know, for what it's worth, I'm not on social media, so I actively don't participate. Um, That's why you look so what relaxed. I'm really interested, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm relaxed today. <laughs> I have my moments. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am still an Arab and a Muslim, mind you. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, look, I, I, what I would say is that the, um, the, the, the idea of telling a story that is a commentary on your society, a social commentary, um, that tries to be complex is that you don't have like good white people or evil white people. You don't have good Arabs or bad Arabs. That's usually the narrative that we get. Like, you know, if you're, if you're reading a book about Arabs, it's usually a book where they are the bad guys or you're reading a book where actually you've got it all wrong and we're the good guys. Or when you're reading a book about white people, it's either look how evil white people are and, you know, it's a critique of whiteness or it's like the classic white supremacist narrative that reinforces all the old power structures. I'm not interested in both of those um, uh, narratives, the, the, the good one or the bad one. I, I really think that, every, that most human beings are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And so I try to always portray all the characters I create um, as three-dimensional and uh, who are capable of, you know, who are, who are capable of, uh, acts of, of, uh, of tremendous love and who are always capable of acts of tremendous hatred. Um, that's the first point I'll make. The other point I'll make is that, you know, we've been talking quite a bit about love. What I've been wanting to say while I've been talking to you that hasn't come out yet is while I talk to you a lot about love and while I'm talking to the audience about love and while, I, while the book is fundamentally about love, I just really want to stress that the experience of being an Arab Muslim man in Australia is to fundamentally feel unloved most of the time, you know, and you were making that point on me being very relaxed. I, I feel like I have to try to modulate my tone because so often if I speak in that kind of passionate Arab way, you know, with my hands all over the place and in my loud voice, people inherently interpret it as predatory. And I've, 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 you know, I've been accused of uh, being predatory just because of the way I talk sometimes. And I've been accused of being predatory just because of my, my gaze or my appearance. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 you would, you would remember this, Andrew, but you know, for me growing up as an Arab Australian Muslim man in the post 9-11 era um, and, and, you know, uh, at a time when, 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 when Arabs and Muslims were treated as terrorist suspects. I remember even uh, slightly before that when there were stories about us being sexual predators um, because of the Scaf gang rapes, which was, uh, a, you know, a series a lot of our listeners probably don't remember or in some cases weren't even born when this happened. It was in the year 2000. But, um, you know, 13 young men of Arab and Muslim background were convicted of very heinous sexual assaults. Um, but th the problem is that the way the media... The, the way the media spun the narrative was that it was a problem of um, them being Arab and Muslim. And it's that our culture and our religion teaches and endorses this kind of behavior, which is, of course, a, you know, a white supremacist lie. Um, and so there was a lot of negative attention, not just um, uh, on, on the entire Arab and Muslim community because of these crimes. And every young man that I knew, and, and including my, and my, and myself, I remember just feeling like, uh, like we were predators and feeling like everybody was looking at us like we were rapists. And then you might even remember in 2005, the Cronulla riots, um, where, you know, 5,000 white Australians were marching on the beach, chanting F off lebs and physically assaulting anybody that looked Middle Eastern in appearance. And the last point I'll make, because I, I just don't want to make it look like these are old stories. I mean, only very recently, you know, in 2019, an Australian born white supremacist went into a mosque and massacred 51 Muslims uh, peacefully conducting their Friday prayers in Christchurch. And so, you know, 
the experience of, of being an Arab and a Muslim, in my case, being an Arab and Muslim man, is that you fundamentally feel unloved by your country, by your politicians, by your journalists, by your media, and by you know many of your citizens. And so, so often the the the, the, the tension that I'm trying to navigate as a storyteller mm. is trying to find love and trying to ask the community to love me. And and I know that if I can just tell a beautiful story, I, I can I can win my audience over. I can I can I can help Australia see my humanity, my son's humanity, my community's humanity, and earn um, the love that we deserve. I remember this was so devastatingly brought home in the other half of you. There's a scene, it's a, it's a very benign scene, and it's, it's, it's probably because of the, the seeming nothingness of the scene that it, it, it is so devastating where I'm, I think it is Banny is in an interaction with a woman. I think he's purchasing something, and, and she says to him, it's so terrible what you guys did to those girls. Like in, she in him sees every Arab or Arab uh, presenting man or however we want. I mean, that, that term's useless. Like, you know, how we look yeah. does not define who we are. But it, it's just so – to her, it's just – it's all the same. I would like to speak to that because it's an important scene. It is benign. But um, it's, it, 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 in, in the book, I fictionalized the account. So I, I want to tell the true account of what happened. Mm. And then, you know, uh, if our audience will do me the honor, they can see how I handle that as a piece of creative writing in my novel. But I remember this book um, came out in 2010 called Evil in the Suburbs by Cindy Wachner and Michael Porter. And it was the, it was a, it was the account of the scaff gang rapes. Um, and on the cover, you know, you have, I mean, again, you can see my face right now. You have young men on the cover who literally look like me, Bilal Skaff and um, his brother, Mohammed Skaff, who were the, you know, uh, Bilal Skaff was the ringleader in, in these heinous crimes and got, got high, the highest sentence ever for these kinds of crimes, 55 years. This happened in the year 2000. He's still in jail. So it was, you know, it was a very, very serious crime for which he received a very, very serious, and, in, in, and you know, in, um, he, he received a very serious um, and, um, and deserved a punishment that he deserved. Um, uh, but the, the way the media had framed it as like, it's a problem of your religion and your culture. I remember because I saw the book on the, on, it was outside of the co-op bookshop at, at my university. It was, I was a third year university student, uh, Western Sydney university student at the time. And I quickly ran over to grab the book to buy it. You know, it's actually quite uncommon for me to see, um, books, novels with people that look like me on the cover. And so even the ones that have a, a negative value, are still draw me. You know, I still want to read them to see what they say. Um, for, for the record, I actually think that book does a very poor, um, does a very poor job of telling that story. Um, I think it, um, it doesn't do justice to the victims of those crimes. And I think it's an inherently racist book that constantly blames Middle Eastern culture and Islam for the, for the, for the history of sexual assault in Australia, as though the only people that have ever committed these kinds of crimes are Arab and Muslim men. Um, so, I, I quickly ran over to the co-op uh, bookshop, to the book stand, and I grabbed the book. And I took it to the counter, and I said to the white lady who was um, selling the book, um, I said to her as I was purchasing it, um, it, it has, do you know anything about this book? Is it a good book? And she said to me, yes, it's a brilliant book. I cried so much when I read what you did to those girls. And, you know, just to be framed as a sexual predator, just to be conflated with Bilal Skaff, you know, it was such a traumatic experience for me. 
And I think, you know, this is not something that white men have to experience in Australia. I don't think that when the Murphy brothers uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted, raped, tortured and murdered Anita Cobby, anybody was saying, you know, all white men are therefore rapists and sexual predators. And so I, I don't, I don't look, I, I really want to be clear. I don't attack white people and white culture in my book. I don't preach at my reader. I just tell these stories, you know, and I just try to depict how they psychologically affect my community. And, and gradually I hope the reader just kind of makes up their own conclusions about what all this means and what, and what it means to be um, a, a citizen of Australia, you know, black, brown or white in the year 2021 as a result of the storytelling. I want to counterpoint with another um, part of the book that jumped out to me and, and the way that you depict culture, the way that you explore and examine culture. Um, it struck me that there are there are moments, like the other half of you has genuinely funny observational moments. And um, this is, and I could not locate, I could not pinpoint the point of the book because you do this so often, but there is a point where you're talking about food, I think, and... You mentioned, you say, so it's something along the lines of um, about serving lead bread, which of course we don't call lead bread, but bread as opposed to, um, you know, the bread you buy at the shops, which of course we call Aussie bread. Um, and I just, it's absolutely brilliant. And it, it, it highlights so perfectly the way upbringing and culture and um, individual gaze really conditions so much of the way we think about the world. And when we have that exposed, it looks ludicrous. It looks ludicrous. The way we look at the world is sometimes completely ludicrous. Um, well, what I want to say about that is, um, even I, I would presume from this interview, uh, you, you wouldn't gather that I'm a funny guy. Um, you know, <laughs> if you see... If you see other interviews uh, that I've done, if you see my TV interviews, uh, anyone, if, if anyone feels very inclined, they can go and check out my appearance on Q&A um, in 2018. But, you know, I come off as quite a serious guy. And um, I come off as quite an angry guy. That, that's the stereotype, you know, the angry Arab. Um, just for the record, I'm not angry. I'm just, I'm just passionate. <laughs> mm. But the, the thing is that, um, uh, you know, people tell me all the time, your writing is actually quite funny. You know, that comes up a lot in reviews and just in conversations. Um, and it, it's kind of almost um, jarring because, I, because I'm, not, I'm not a comedian. And, I, 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 you know, I take life very seriously. I take my work very seriously, um, sometimes too seriously. And so um, when, when, when I'm trying to explain why the work might just be inherently funny is because of a very simple phenomenon, which is that wogs are funny, you know. And if I'm a good writer, I'll just... I'll just tell the story really well. And as a natural byproduct of that, it would be funny, you know? So I, 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 don't, I don't try and tell funny stories. I don't try to do comedy. I, I'm just doing my very best to be very specific and very detailed in capturing the essence of being an Arab Australian Muslim, being a Leb, you know, from the Western suburbs of Sydney. Um, and if I feel like if I do that on its own, the humor will come out on its own. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of what I mean. I was standing in line <laughs> at the KFC and, you know, this is in, this is in the book, but I'm standing in line at KFC in Punchbowl and um, the lab guy in front of me, you know, he's got his Adidas tracksuit pants and he's got his mullet and he goes up to the counter and he orders two pieces of chicken and cholesterol. <laughs> and the, the, the woman at the counter looks at him very confused and says cholesterol. And he says, Oh shit, I mean, coleslaw. I always get those two things confused. And, you know, I could not 
I could not make that up that, you know, a guy accidentally ordered cholesterol at KFC <laughs> because he mixed it up with the word coleslaw. They just keep taking and, the cholesterol um, out of things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's those kinds of moments that, you know, for me as a writer, I'm always looking for and that I just put in my work. Um, and, I, and I feel like if I just capture the essence of the leb, you know, that, that leb boy, um, the humor will come out all on its own. I find myself thinking we've we've been talking now, and this is a book that I think we we confessed off air. We could probably talk for hours, you and I. Um, but I want to make sure that there are a few areas that I just I get to. And and one thing that really jumped out through my reading of the book was the way masculinity is approached and explored. And I think in in one of my many notes that um, I've completely abandoned in our conversation, I talk to myself about how uh, Banny is is almost exemplary in his his masculinity not because he's hit on the perfect way but because in his imperfection he is still always questioning he's still always interrogating he is looking at the world and trying to understand how it works um it jumped out at me that the 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 lebs ends with Banny and his friend Bucky sharing a moment and and Banny sort of breaking away from that moment saying this is gay bro this is so fucking gay um and there is a continuing evolution of that relationship with all of Banny's relationships and i wondered what insights you had learned through your life through your writing through the the introspection that writing brings on the ways that we wear and we perform our masculinity um the safest way to answer this question, uh, so that I'm not seen as um, being an apologist for toxic men, is to quote the feminist scholarship in the area. Um, I remember there was a really interesting interview, a live interview I'd seen uh, about five years ago from a, one of the most uh, distinguished um, feminist activists uh, and writers in the United States, um, an African-American writer named Bell Hook. And in an, in an in conversation, um, this uh, woman got up and, and was kind of, you know, crying. She was very upset, talking about her exhaustion of being surrounded by this hyper-masculinity mm. um, in, uh, in her workplace. And Bell Hook stopped her halfway through the conversation, through her, her rant, and said, if you mean patriarchy, say patriarchy. And... Um, the reason Bell Hooks made this point is because she, she feels that the, there's an accidental conflation that often happens between patriarchy and masculinity. And this is an incredibly dangerous um, uh, path to take because uh, there's a lot of men who are masculine who can't help being masculine. They're big, they're loud, they're hairy, they're physically very strong, um, but who are not patriarchal they're very gentle and they have very strong feminist values and similarly there are a lot of men who are feminine in the way they communicate in the way they behave in the way they look but assert what bell hooks calls a benevolent patriarchy and it's extra important because usually it's poorer men and men of color who who can't help being masculine and usually it's educated middle-class white men who can't help being seen as feminine. And so it's very important to distinguish between masculinity and patriarchy and to recognize that you can be masculine separate from patriarchy and that 
masculinity can be beautiful. Um, in fact, Bill Hooks says we need to be able to honor that which is masculine and beautiful separate from patriarchy. And so I try to write about the beauty of masculinity separate from patriarchy. And I think, you know, any, any of my critics, you know, when they read the book, they will see. I do not in any way make excuses for the men in my culture. I think the Arab men get the hardest slog, you know, like I'm really, really critical of Bani's own patriarchal behavior and toxic masculinity. I'm very critical of the father figures, the, the Arab male father figures. And I really, what I try to do in the book is not so much give an account of, again, I, I go back to what I was saying, good guy, bad guy, innocent or, uh, you know, perpetrator, you know, of, of patriarchy, I, you know, I don't. I, I try to just offer a complex portrayal of Arab Muslim men, and that means that that we see uh, the beauty in them, and we also see the toxicity in them at the same time. So, if then we we can acknowledge that we're we're living and working, and our lives exist within um, these structural systems, such as as patriarchy, which is a you know incredibly. Uh, prevalent and powerful structural system is that idea of questioning that I identified in Bani. Is that one of our most powerful tools? Is that ability to look to question to not accept? Um, is that one of our most most powerful tools uh, to to be masculine and to to realize our own our own identity? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what I would say is that the, the problem with the conversation about identity politics that we usually happen that is usually happening is that um, we usually it's always uh, kind of uh, um, um, you know um, it's it's usually broken up into separate categories. You know, it's like if you went to a writers' festival, you know, you can go to the, the the event on feminism, and then you can go to the event on racism, and then you can go to the event on sexuality, and then you can go to the event on class, and then you can go um, you know, to the event on disability. And we, we, we tend to talk about these socio-political conditions as though they're independent of each other. Whereas in reality, they're, they're interconnected. Actually, uh, going back to Bill Hooks, she calls that phenomenon intersectionality. Um, and it's, so the full embodiment of the global problem is what uh, Bill Hooks refers to as imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. Now, when I'm teaching this to school students, you know, intersectionality to school students, and I use that term, I tell them, can you think of a figure in the world who represents that term, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy? And the kids will eventually, usually the first person that comes to mind is Donald Trump, you know? Um, and so there are very few people actually in the world who are Donald Trump. He's, he, he represents a very, very, very small percentage of the world's population. And so in reality, most of us are living in a, in a kind of, uh, a fluid place where, where the benefactors of certain privileges and the victims of certain disadvantages um, simultaneously and all at once. And we're just kind of operating somewhere in the middle. And so I, I feel like, you know, for me as an Arab Australian Muslim, as a heterosexual Arab Australian Muslim man, I am constantly trying to uh, counterbalance my privileges versus my disadvantages. And I think my writing tries to offer an intersectional understanding of what it means to be a minority in Australia in the year 2021. I'll let the critics decide if I do a good job of that. This one says yes. Um, at an early point in this discussion, Mohammed, you were talking to us about proleptic writing. You were talking to us about the feature of foreshadowing and if a book 
can tell us at the beginning sort of where it's going, what is the purpose of reading it. And I think this discussion has shown some of the enormous potential for for thought and discussion that is contained in in the story of the other half of you. I thank you so much for um, for taking the time. Um, I'm going to acknowledge that I, I threw a whole lot of my questions out the window when our, our conversation sort of just flowed. And I'd like to invite you, is there anything that, that maybe we haven't touched on in the other half of you that you would like to say before we, we wrap up our discussion? Look, I always enjoy our conversations, Andrew, and I was very pleased in the direction this went. I'm really pleased at all the details that we got to unpack. Um, what, what I would say is that, uh, that you know, it's, it's a big book, you know, 90,000 words. And so we could never fully encapsulate everything that uh, was said in, in, in the book. Uh, what, what I would tell, tell our listeners, what I would say to the audience is that, you know, there are so many stories you hear about people like me, uh, Arab, Australian, Muslim men. In a way, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm 36 years old. I've had a very fortunate career. Um, but you know, uh, this is a, this is a book that is in many ways trying to support and protect and fight for the next generation. You know, my son's generation of Arab Australian Muslims who are, who are growing up in this world. And so w- what I would say is you can't know us through, um, the media. You can't know us through journalists. You can't know us through politicians. If you want to know us truly, you have to invest in our work. You have to read our stories. Um, my book, The Other Half of You, I mentioned, uh, the wonderful Randa Abdul Fattah. And her new book, um, uh, Coming of Age in the War on Terror. Uh, a couple of other amazing books that are coming out this year by Arab Australian writers. Uh, Amani Haydor, her book, The Mother Wound, uh, and Sarah El Sayed's uh, new book, Muddy People. And what I, what I would say is the, the last thing and the only thing that I really have to say now is that, um, I, I, I really invite Australia to, to get involved in, in our narrative and to invest in our books and to find out who we are through our own stories. I, wholeheartedly back that investing in stories investing in books and reading the authors that muhammad has just mentioned some of them you will have met on final draft and others you will meet in the future muhammad thank you so much i'm speaking with michael muhammad ahmed we are discussing the other half of you his new novel it is it is so many things and uh Thank you for staying with this conversation because I hope you have found a little bit of them and and run out to read it. I appreciate your time, Mohammed. Thank you. And again, I love to finish our interviews by saying assalamu alaikum, not just to you, but also to our wonderful listeners. Thank you so much. That is it for part two of this great conversation with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Muhammad's new novel, The Other Half of You, is out now from Heshet Publishing. And if you want to hear more about some of Muhammad's other books, those conversations are also on the podcast. Go back through the episodes and you'll find uh, conversations on his uh, Miles Franklin shortlisted book, The Lebs, and also the collection that he edited after Australia. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Look for at Final Draft 2SER. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you're reading and what you think of the books that we're featuring. Subscribe in the podcast app. There's a new great conversation every week along with bonuses. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations. Until then, happy reading. Bye now.